Buzzkills, the show that applauds finding multiple uses for a white folding chair. <laughs> I think they call it white chair premacy. If I'm I think not... that that's a fully appropriate term and we should stick to that. Absolutely. I think you're right. I'm Liz Winstead. And that person talking to me was my adorable co-host, Moji Alawadale. I just called you adorable. You did call me adorable. You know what? You're not, it's not inaccurate. No, it's true. I am adorable. Thanks for that. (laughs) Anyway, so many updates today on the pod. Updates on the Texas is worth its weight in shittiness. And despite Illinois trying to be great, anti-abortion evildoers are trying to wreck all of that. And Pennsylvania's governor just cut off fake clinics from the government teat. And we have Tara Murtha from the Women's Law Project to fill us in on how huge this truly is. So much huge. Oh so my gosh. huge. Plus, Arizona OBGYN and abortion provider Dr. Deshaun Taylor is here to talk about her new book, Undue Burden, a Black woman physician on being Christian and pro-abortion in the reproductive justice movement. And the maraschino cherry on this activist Sunday is TikTok star and comedian Stanzi Potenza. Indeed. I'm a huge fan. I know. Before we kick into everything, of course, we have updates. I don't know if you've been living under a rock, but also if you've just been living in a world where other news doesn't get on the news because of, you know, other things. I think that we know what we're talking about. Big updates. We've talked tons about Texas and the folks who had brought a suit against the state of Texas because they almost all died during their pregnancies and needed life-saving abortion care and had to beg for it. A judge who has actually humanity and also understands the constitutional law to be alive said, you're right, there needs to be clarity in the Texas law and these people should deserve that clarity and you should be able to have an abortion when a doctor deems you should, sounds fair. Everybody was happy for about 10 minutes until the uh, attorney general stepped in and said, oh no, we can't have people surviving on our watch. Oh my gosh. Or thriving or not enduring pain for the sin of, you know, being pregnant in Texas. And yet here we are. You'd think Ken Paxson was the worst, but it turns out even their interim uh, attorneys general sucks. Yeah, it's really bad news. And so hopefully more People with actually humanity and constitutional chops are going to say, fuck you. These people actually need care and we can't just let people die. And so we'll be following that story. Also in Illinois, we were so excited that we reported last week on the state of Illinois, deciding they were going to hold fake clinics accountable and that they were going to set up a hotline that if anybody fell prey to one, they could report it and these people could be fined $50,000 if found guilty. Well, Wah, wah, wah. We can't have nice things. We just can't have nice things. And basically, you know, the antis came with a suit and it's been blocked for now, the law, as it goes to trial, which could be five to 20 years. Joking, not that long. Yeah, it's just a mess. <laughs> but too long for some sort of remedy to the scourge of fake clinics. I mean, I know both of those stories are bummer theater, but so let's get to the biggest, baddest, best news of the week before we kick off everything, which is Ohio really just said, tell me that you're pro-abortion without telling me you're pro-abortion. Ohio was like, you know what? We need an eighth new electoral moment to affirm abortion rights are extremely popular in this country. And Ohio was like, we're ready for it. We are yeah. here. We're prepared. Sign us up. It is so great. And, I, you know, if you, unless you've been living under a rock, you know, Ohio overwhelmingly and even in the reddest of counties voted. We 
will not amend our constitution to try to fuck people over, which is really great. And Mm -hmm. it is on the big mega scale. It's about saying we want democracy. We want a 50 plus one way to vote for ballot initiatives. But really, it was about since they started this whole thing after they found out that there was going to be an abortion ballot initiative, it's really about abortion. So people voted for democracy and think that abortion is democracy. So go Ohio. It is incredible. When grassroots people start a movement, we win. Yeah. And when abortion is on the ballot, we win. Turns out abortion is grassroots. It's from the grass. It's from the roots. It's grassroots. So go Ohio, all the activists in Ohio. uh, We salute you for working so hard on this. A special shout out to the Toledo escorts. Uh, Kristen Haiti was one of our own who works at Abortion Access Front, worked really hard on this, along with Narrow Pro-Choice Ohio and All Options and the Abortion Fund of Ohio and so many other organizations who really fought to let people know it was garbage. And the reminder that this is step one of step two, that this was just preserves the right for people to win in November when abortion is really on the ballot. But this just preserves the the path to winning because uh, there's the conservatives are really cynical and they were like, oh, this thing seems to be 59% uh, popular. Let's raise the threshold to 60. Exactly. And so go Ohio. I feel really excited for you. This bodes well for America. Yay. It does. And it's so good to come in with some good news before I come and just bring on a little bit more of the shit salad. As I was researching about the Idaho story we're going to get into, I found some other ridiculous story taking us back to Texas. Basically, this flight attendant from Southwest Airlines won a suit for $5.1 million after she chose to spam her colleagues with anti-abortion propaganda, including videos of fetuses. Basically, she was fired for doing this because we should all be free from being spammed by our colleagues on our personal Facebook pages. With fetal porn. With fetal porn and being told explicitly we are despicable. But the judge in Texas um, was like, no, 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 no. It is her uh, religious freedom to harass her, her colleagues with her views on abortion that they disagree with. It's such a weird case because she claimed that the taking of human life and exposing it was a required part of her religious belief. So apparently she could she was required to spam her colleagues. I don't even understand how this works. I don't even understand how this works. It seems so ridiculous. There was a judge who did the ruling, but also like. A Texas, like this is in front of a jury. So a jury of Texans were like, "Mm -hmm, that seems right. You can absolutely span your colleagues and call them despicable because they're not anti-abortion. That's basically their sin. They were not anti-abortion. And she was like, no, no, no. I need to tell you what you believe is wrong. And this is how this is again, this is a year old. This ruling came out in 2022, where we were all like reeling from the Dobbs decision, trying to figure out what was going on in the world. And this just went over our head, but the judge ruled Southwest had civility policies, which essentially says you cannot harass your colleagues. And the judge said, no, no, no. These civility policies take a backseat to an employee's religious freedom to harass her colleagues. I just don't even understand that. So does that mean that somebody can literally just be like, I'm going to bring this cross over to your cubicle and just like, reenact the crucifixion because it is my religious belief that you need to understand Christianity. Sounds like it to me. All these religious people seem to have all these freedoms to just lie and be trash. 
And then the second that you you actually want to like use facts or mm-hmm. teach um, critical thinking around an issue, that shit is shut down. It's really fucking sucks. So anyway, it leads perfectly into your story that about Idaho. It does. And we're going to talk about it and get into it and just how like how this relates to Idaho and all of this stuff. And, and it relates to Texas and it relates to Illinois. It just relates to all of it. But first, let's get back to our regularly scheduled program and let Molly drop a steaming pile of this week's news on you. Welcome back, Molly. Thank you. The adorable Molly Gaby here to drop a steaming news dump on ya. Stop trying to steal my moniker, Molly. I'm the adorable one here. If I'm going to train AI, I'm going to train it to know that I'm adorable. (laughs) This week, anti-abortion lowlifes are trying to shit on our reproductive parade. And as we know, every good parade expands pregnant worker protections. And Grand Marshal Joe Biden has done just that, adding abortion care into those protections. And now enter the creepy congressional clowns to ruin the fun. Bitter bombing the legislation because it would require reasonable accommodations for people who get abortions. And they can't have that. So I hope they can reasonably accommodate my clown foot up their clown ass. But is it really a parade? If it's a parade of lies, an international AIDS relief program called PEPFAR that has saved millions of lives is now in peril of not being reauthorized for the first time in 20 years. Why? Because the aforementioned clowns are spraying bullshit from their flowers that says the program is nefariously used to, quote, promote abortions and push a radical gender ideology abroad. I guess. Sure. If the gender ideology they're pushing is remaining alive, then yeah. That's a little, that's a wild one. (laughs) Remaining alive is just real. It's a spectrum and that's a part of it. Now the parade route heads west all the way over to Utah, where the state Supreme Court heard oral arguments on their total abortion ban. Clowns dressed in lawyer costumes defending the ban asked the justices to, you know, focus on the original intentions of the delegates who drafted the state constitution over a century ago. Their excitement about their, we were shitty back in the 1800s, so we should stay shitty defense was quickly deflated when one justice casually pointed out that no women were allowed to help draft the Constitution. Then she dropped her gavel and the courtroom went, oh, shit, burn. (laughs) Did they really? Is that true? That's from the transcripts, Liz. Don't question me. And finally, bringing up the back of the parade is Biohazard Betty, a.k.a. Lauren Handy, the anti-abortion activist whose 15 minutes of fame was for stealing 115 fetuses and storing them in a cooler in her apartment. And that's not even why she's in the news, you guys. (laughs) Jury selection began this week for something else she did that's just as creepy. Handy is facing... 10 years in jail and hundreds of thousands in fines for storming an abortion clinic in D.C. like the Kool-Aid man, knocking over a staff person and moving the chairs to block the entrance to the treatment area using chains and ropes to tie the chairs together. Now, if you're thinking, Molly, that sounds really fucked up, but go back to that weird fetus stealing situation. When is that trial happening? I'm also (laughs) wondering that. I guess it's so creepy that they can't even come up with the charges for it. It doesn't, I, who, we don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> so for now, that's been your steaming news dump and back to you. You know, tying yourself to chairs and chains and blocking it, it sounds like some terrible remake of Titanic. <laughs> you know, where it's just like, 
we're on the ship and I'm going to do a reenactment of this movie. But really, I'm just a monster who and she does this all the time. She and her hench people, they go into abortion clinics all over the place and burst in. And, and on top of all of that horribleness, they hand the patients roses to mm. tell them that someone will take care of their babies. It's really gross. Oh, does Lauren have a job? I'm so confused. This is her job. She literally, she works for a nonprofit called Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising. So Progressive and Anti-Abortion and Uprising. Pow! Yeah, but they pal around with Ted Cruz. But this is her job. She's part of an organization that literally travels around the country like grifters and Mm -hmm. burst into abortion clinics, taking federal offenses to the next level and then complaining that they have federal charges brought against them. It's like, hey, you know how you avoid that? Stop criming. It's so easy to avoid federal charges if you don't do federal crimes. It's weird. (laughs) It's a weird thing. Molly, thank you so much. We're glad you're back. We're so excited that we have all of our dope news people back in the mix. Have a good weekend. You too. Good to be back. Thank you. All right. Now... Let's get to Idaho because we've been blabbing about Idaho, how it ties in. Moji, tell us the latest out of Idaho. All right. So Idaho, our shining star of abortion fuckery is um, really leading the charge and being the worst. And so basically we just discovered that Idaho professors would like to be able to discuss abortion without risking jail time. There's a gag order. It's called the um, No Public Funds for Abortion Act, and it is a law that is essentially a gag order for Idaho professors in college, and it makes them unable to talk about really anything to do with abortion because the law is so vaguely written and so unclear that they are essentially going to the courts for clarity. So- This law, if I'm not mistaken, Moji, was written like back in 2021 or something, right? That's when it was passed. Yeah. And what does the law actually say uh, to two people who want to talk about abortion? Talk about it in general. Yeah. So this is coming from uh, professors, but it actually is anyone who receives public funding is under this gag law. Anyone who receives state funding from Idaho. And it says, though, professors who teach, discuss or write about abortion positively may face up to 14 years of imprisonment. But again, as I said, the law is written so broadly. It's sort of like encourage, support. It just doesn't actually give clear metrics for people to follow. And so what it's led to is people on campuses, college campuses, not telling people about birth control and emergency contraceptive referrals. It's led to art exhibits being censored, that it all address abortion. A professor of philosophy has actually just removed a whole section of her biomedical ethics course that discussed human reproduction because she was unclear as to what would fall up the law. And professors in general have made changes to their lectures and have halted classroom discussions if they seem to go on about abortion for too long. Whoa. I mean, like, how do you even teach like debate or ethics classes or, you know, having people present all sides of an issue or to even discuss what like the anti-abortion movement or what the pro-abortion movement would use in their arguments around abortion? Like all of that, it seems to be out the window. You know, we talk mostly about Florida and basically in there, like, don't say gay was one of the sort of first national attentions to this. But it seems that conservatives have just realized one of the best ways to control people is to legislate what you can talk about and really legislate it in a way that just 
stifles and chills discussion, period. I just don't understand because it's like, if this legislation holds up in a court of law, you know, could somebody just create the no public funds for weed act, you know, and say you can never talk about weed because it's not legal here. You can't talk about the benefits of it. You can't talk about how to grow it. You can't talk about it as a thing that exists in the world or the medicinal value it has. You know, I'm assuming if you allow this for abortion, that you could allow speech about anything that's controversial that's not yes. legal in your state. Absolutely. I think that this is sort of the slippery slope and the fear that the ACLU also saw. The grounds that they're sort of fighting this on is 14th Amendment, A, because there's a part of the 14th Amendment that says you can't have vague laws. You can't have laws that, that people can't follow plainly and be clear when they've run afoul of. And then, of course, the most obvious is the First Amendment. Just how can you tell a person you just can't say this word? Because that's kind of what it's boiling down to right? in action, that you just can't say this word. And once you start removing the ability to say words, then there is no real discussion about it. You can't have a debate, not with college students who we know are like, they're in their formative years. College students are a lot of times what leads our like national trends of change, period, right? Right. And if tax dollars are going to low-income clinics or any place else trying to, you know, give anyone advice, that's all gone too. But it's just one more example. And, you know, we opened the show talking about, you know, how the Texas Attorney General just refused to, you know, intervened in giving clarity around whether people live or die and what life-saving abortion looks like, right? And it's just the bounty hunting laws and all of this vagueness around if you've been raped, how you report your rape and what that looks like. It's just one more example of this purposeful vagueness that is framing the whole anti-abortion agenda of how they're fighting against the backlash around Dobbs. And I feel like it's fairly scary that they're just regulating us not being able to ask for clarity. And then they're whole cloth allowing lies at fake clinics and abortion reversal is, which isn't true where there's been like, you know, Colorado just recently was like, well, we're not going to take it off the table. We're just going to kind of give you a slap on the wrist to say, this isn't proven science. Or we're wholesale supporting a person who says I can spread my anti-abortion views wholesale without any pushback. And if it goes afoul of the of the company's laws about how people should just interact civilly, that's not acceptable. We are going to say no, no, no. Her religious freedom rights to talk about her religion trump your rights to not be harassed. And it's also the gaslighting. And I think that's one of the things you touched on just a few moments ago, like this idea that these laws are unclear. No one knows what to do with them. And then when people say we need clarity, the people who wrote the laws or the people who are defending the laws are like, no, no, no. It's very clear what it says. What it says is not what you're saying that you need clarity about. That's clear. And it's like, well, if it was clear, then people in Texas wouldn't be suffering when they have pregnancies that need support or need abortion. Let's be honest. If it was clear, than the teachers in Idaho would be clear what they could talk about, but they're not. And rather than wanting to address that or confront that, I think, you know, these people. And I also want to say both the Southwest case I brought up before and this legislation in Idaho were drafted by and defended by the Alliance Defending Freedom. Understand that Alliance for Defending Freedom and Liberty First and the Thomas More Society, that the anti-abortion movement is churning out and paying for law school for these culture warrior attorneys to take up every case 
and to do this to the tune of like 150 to every one lawyer that is working for the ACLU or Center for Reproductive Rights or, or, or progressive legal entities. So just know that we're just being out lawyered as well as everything. You know, they're just sitting on any street corner doing it. So that is that. But I want to transition to our next guest because when it comes to fake clinics and all the garbage, we had a big win in Pennsylvania last week. It's pretty exciting. So while we talked about Illinois and their fake clinic accountability law being challenged, Pennsylvania's governor has also taken steps on that front by defunding their medical quackery because they refuse to be transparent about the information they give and the care they provide. Joining us to talk about this victory and Pennsylvania's long history of supporting fake clinics is Tara Murtha, Director of Strategic Communications at the Women's Law Project. The Women's Law Project is a nonprofit public interest legal organization that works to defend and advance the rights of women, girls, and LGBTQ plus people in Pennsylvania and beyond. Please welcome Tara. Hey, Tara. Hi, thanks for having me. Congratulations. I know. Thank you so much. We are, uh, we're really excited for a big win in Pennsylvania that we've all, many people have fought for for a long time. That's right. Pennsylvania has been for years funding these fake places to the tune of over a hundred million dollars. And your new governor just cut that shit off. So what were the steps that you or your organization or just Pennsylvanians writ large took to make this happen? Well, you know, if you if we fight, we win. And in this case, if we fight and conduct original research and litigate and advocate and all the things, uh, we win. So this has been a um, you know pretty broad coalition of advocates across Pennsylvania, Pennsylvanians, the majority of which, like everyone across the country, supports abortion access, calling for you know accountability um, for crisis pregnancy centers in Pennsylvania, and really intense advocacy, I'd say, for the last four or so years. Now, Governor Shapiro just announced that he's defunding Real Alternatives, which is the pass-through umbrella organization. And he was attorney general when a public complaint was filed. I mean, a 27-page, this thing had more footnotes than Infinite Jest, right? 27 pages <laughs> of allegations of uh, fiscal irregularities, to put it generously, um, on top of the harm that we know that CPCs pose in, in general to pregnant people. So, there's been just from every, it's a little bit like saying, you know, the food is terrible and the restaurant's poorly run. We want to make sure there's just not a more sophisticated vendor that comes in and we'll be working to ensure that, uh, like the administration committed, the funds are going to get reallocated to evidence-based, imagine, evidence-based um, best practice support for pregnant people. So reports, data, testimony, hearings, and we've had champions in the legislature too, the state legislature and the Women's Health Caucus that held hearings where physicians came in and testified about experiences patients have had before they got there. You know, all the things really. And uh, we are exhausted and relieved that at long last, the piggy bank is closed. We have protested outside of these big clinics in Pennsylvania specifically. For folks who might not know, there's a long history of tax dollars and the church and just a lot of nefarious characters propping up these fake clinics in Pennsylvania. I wonder if you could just touch a little bit on sort of historically how big a role these fake clinics have played in reproductive care in Pennsylvania, because it's huge. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, people think that they're or used to think, hopefully not so much anymore, that they're a little scattershot mom and pop organizations. We know that they're one of the three main arms of the anti-abortion movement. And this is nationally significant because the CPC industry was invented in Pennsylvania. We were the first state to divert public funding. We were the first state to sweeten that by yanking money away from children in poverty and low-income pregnant people and sending it um, pretty much allowing anti-abortion career risks to uh, dip into funds meant for the people that they purport to help, right? So not only that, but, uh, you know, Real Alternatives has operated in Michigan and Indiana. They were also defunded in Michigan. So two out of three. And they uh, have advised other states how to emulate this business model, right? This this grift of getting public funds. So um, it's really kind of like the head of the Hydra happening here by defunding them, I'd say. And they're, of course, a significant barrier. There's nine to one is the ratio in Pennsylvania, which is an outlier for the Northeast in terms of uh, nine CPCs for every legitimate um, medical provider providing abortion care. Um, and so it really does have national significance and shows that and it's against the tied. As you know, CPCs mm-hmm. are getting more money everywhere that they can. This is a Dobbs has been a windfall for mm-hmm. the anti-abortion careers and executives pretending to help pregnant people. Yeah. And, you know, we're just starting this conversation around the hole that they're filling too. And it's a good one to have. Mm-hmm. It's true. I'm so glad that you reminded us that um, places like Texas are giving them so much more money and Louisiana are giving them so much more money. So it's one taps off, another tap is on. We talked earlier in the show where you got to hear about Illinois also taking steps to hold fake clinics accountable and that being challenged in court. Illinois recently, also in Colorado, but can you talk specifically about Illinois, how this is different from what is happening there? And do you expect any sort of legal challenge from the fake clinics to this defunding? Right. Well, there are two different things. I mean, all over the country, we're seeing um, attempts to hold CPCs accountable for deceptive claims and deceptive tactics. There has been some success, like in Connecticut, but there are there's barriers. I mean, there is a uh, you know a strong, um, well financed legal industry waiting to challenge every single attempt to hold CPCs accountable for deceptive claims. So, well, that's going on in Illinois. This is a bit different. It wasn't um, a deceptive uh, practice as law, just straight up not renewing the contract uh, with Real Alternatives, which is almost three decades, and not eliminating support for pregnant people, the money will get reallocated toward legitimate help. So it's in this way, it's not a law. It's uh, letting a contract with a plague scandal-laden organization expire and not renew it. I mean, it's been renewed every year for, you know, decades, so. You know, the one thing we didn't say is, well, how much was this contract for? What what, what are we talking about here? Well, for the play-by-play, we were... um, (sighs) We, and I'll say, I'll speak for myself, I was feeling rather demoralized. Uh, There's been a budget impasse in Pennsylvania, and uh, we saw that Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Senate, run by the GOP, had slipped a secret funding bump into the CPC contract. So the budget actually increased the funding for real alternatives not addressing any of the allegations of misuse of public funds, not addressing any of the deceptive practice, none of that, just secret funding bump uh, of 30% that would have brought that contract to 9.1 or over $9 million. Annually? Yes. Oh, wow. So it was 
poised to increase funding. So I was feeling, you know, didn't know what was going to happen there. I mean, we, uh, you know, believe in the Shapiro administration. Uh, Josh Shapiro ran on supporting abortion rights. You can't do that while funding the anti-abortion industry. However, we didn't know what was going to happen, truly. Like, you know, whiplash is the name of the game out here in these abortion rights streets <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Literally minute to minute whiplash. Yeah. So what happened is uh, the governor did indeed sign the budget with the increase, but then a few hours later announced that he would be terminating or the administration, DHS technically, would be terminating the contract with Real Alternatives. That's how low, high, low it was going down in Pennsylvania. So, you know, in Pennsylvania now, two streams of public funding were defunded because we did state contract as well as money meant for children in poverty via TANF. But they're the CPC industry, one of their very specific functions is to funnel public money into the anti-abortion movement. They do that through the license plates, through state contracts, through TANF. And now the next frontier of this uh, is tax credit schemes, which are advancing and passing in many states. It's boilerplate legislation cranked out from AUL like the rest of it. Some of them don't even have caps. So now the big reason why they like it, uh, which they've written about, is that it has even less accountability, basically, you know, no strings attached. Um, so now we're talking about a funding stream more hidden from the public view, passed without public debate. In some cases, no cap, you know, that are just they're seeking to embed permanent funding streams. It's a real entitlement mentality, I would venture to say at this point from the anti-abortion. You know, it's like we say it so often, but it really is like whack-a-mole. You know, yeah. it's mm -hmm. like, oh, this one and then tax games. It's like, God, they really don't have anything else to do other than think of ways to oppress people who aren't them. It's just shocking. The oppression, I feel like, is a side effect. There's the there's definitely just this grift, this like money grab that I think people sort of ignore the money grab element of it because they get excited about the you know anti-abortion of it all. But it's like they're not even helping people; they're just collecting money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the money grab, of course, and then the effect of that is CPC industry only thrives in scarcity. So mm. you have to work to make people, to deprive people of things like information and access to healthcare so you could pretend to provide it for them and get that money. Yep. Yeah. And you have to defund your public education so that people are dumb enough to fall for it. It's messed up enough. The taxpayer funding, the sneaking in of, you know, these bumps, like you said, and the way it's funded, because so often that's what's happening. But privacy concerns around these fake clinics is to me almost worse than taxpayer funding because of the the way that they they can literally operate. I wish you could speak a little bit to our listeners about just how terrifying the privacy concerns are when it comes to these fake clinics. Sure, sure. And the, the taxpayer funding and the privacy concerns aren't unrelated right. when, you know, of course, the funding is atrocious. But when you contract, I mean, CPC and the CPC industry are the eyes and ears of the anti-abortion movement via a public contract. In addition to getting money, they are essentially becoming an arm, an extension of an anti-abortion state government. We know CPCs have shared information with law enforcement. So the, you know, as we all know, CPCs don't need to adhere generally to any medical privacy laws. So when they're state funded, the, the privacy concern is escalated. But no matter what, any CPC typically doesn't have to comply with privacy laws. And there is a uh, 
cottage industry of collecting and housing the information collected from people. You don't even need to physically go into one just if you interact with them online. So I would just give a particular call out to uh, abortion pill reversal as a deceptive claim, predatory practice. But here you're getting people to call up and self-report that they've begun a abortion process in exchange for the snake oil treatment. And you're calling and reporting to the very organization that houses, warehouses all the information on people who interact with CPCs. So you really need to be very careful about who you're talking to um, online and in person. Wow. That is really, really good advice. And if people wanted to learn more about privacy and things like that, I know that you have done some fantastic research. Where could people go read a little bit more about that? Uh, to follow up on any of our CPC accountability work, uh, you can go to womenslawproject.org. We have a whole page of CPC industry information uh, across many states that have our, collaborate with our partners and uh, get in touch. We are, you know, Lots of conversations are happening about what's next. Public funding was an insult to injury, but the injury continues, and we're going to continue to mitigate that harm and call for CPC accountability for all the now privately funded <laughs> CPCs in Pennsylvania and beyond. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You guys rule. Thanks so much, Tara. You're the best. You guys are working so hard. Thank you. You can read Women's Law Project Report, their statement on funding change, and follow them on social media and sign up for action alerts at the links in our show notes. Indeed. All of these stories will be in our show notes. And as always, we remind you the best and most up-to-the-minute resource on accessing abortion care and funding your care is INeedAnA.com. Now, on to our next guest, who is a joy to talk to, and another interview we taped a little while back with our beloved Marie. So you get some wonderful Marie, as well as Moji, and an abortion provider who is out here doing the most in these Arizona streets. She's a board-certified OBGYN, clinical professor, women's health and reproductive rights advocate, and founder and owner of Desert Star Family Planning in Phoenix. She's also author of Undue Burden, a Black woman physician on being Christian and pro-abortion in the reproductive justice movement. Please welcome Dr. Deshaun Taylor. Hi, thank you for joining us. Hi, Hello. Dr. Taylor. Hello. I'm so glad you're joining us again. This is not your first time on the pod, but just to remind our, our listeners, you're a physician, an abortion provider, and the clinic owner of Desert Star Family Planning. Can you please tell our listeners your personal path to becoming an abortion provider in the state of Arizona? How I ended up in Arizona is an interesting story, but uh, I am an OBGYN by training born, raised, and trained in Los Angeles, California. I did a complex family planning fellowship after finishing my OBGYN residency at the King Drew Medical Center in the Watts Willowbrook area of Los Angeles. Spent a couple years at USC, uh, University of Southern California, doing the fellowship and getting a master's degree associated with that. And I never expected to leave Los Angeles. I had this mission to serve my underserved community as I did my residency training and fellowship training at LA County Hospitals, but there was familial opportunities to move. Um, I started to think about what my life looked like beyond what I was doing in the moment. I was an academic physician at the time and familial ties moved me to Arizona. And I was the statewide medical director of a large family planning provider there. And from there, I started my own practice as a star family planning. And the reason that I did that was because 
over the years of providing abortion care in different settings, an academic setting, in a kind of corporate setting, so to speak, there was this way that I wanted people to feel and um, the care that I wanted people to receive. And it became very clear that I wasn't going to be able to create that in somebody else's system and that I would have to start my own practice. I tell you, I asked myself many times, like, what was I thinking when I started an abortion clinic in the hostile state of Arizona um, during the time where all the restrictions was starting to shrink access to care? So the timing, of course, was great because it added an additional independent abortion clinic to the mix when restrictions were starting to decrease the access to care across the state. You know, I just want to say I've visited your clinic and it is so beautiful and it has that feminist warmth of people just looking at you and caring for you holistically. Before we go on, I just want people to know that, that your vision for what you wanted to bring to abortion care, when you open the door, it's like this wind of support just like pours at you as a person. So I just wanted to thank you for that and for really making that happen for people because it's huge. Thank you for for sharing that because every single thing in the clinic was thoughtful. And to the extent that I could control, I, I really made an effort to want people to feel warmth and welcome and comfort when they come into the clinic. Well, good job. It's as close to creating, going back into just like an enveloped hug as you could create in a office that I've ever been to. So thank you. As Moji mentioned, we're always excited and amped to have you on the pod, but we're doubly pleased today because you just put out a new book, A New Burden. And we know why you named your book this. We can probably make a guess at why you picked that name. Could you explain the title to our listeners? And right after they got published, we were lucky to to get a couple copies. So Undue Burden is one of the criteria that was created by the Supreme Court to determine whether an abortion restriction could be continued by a state. Basically, there was a precedent set some years ago that if a state was going to restrict abortion, that it couldn't be an undue burden for people in that state to still be able to receive abortion care. In various instances, if, say, there was only going to be one clinic left in a state that would be able to provide care, then if the law caused that clinic to close, then that would be an undue burden. Now, let me tell you, though, the amount of time that somebody has to travel to a clinic is not part of the undue burden standard. It really is about, is there any provider um, in the state that actually would be able to provide the care? So that's why we've been able to see a lot of laws pass and stand in some instances because there is still one clinic left in the state. And then we've also seen some things get broken down because it would close the only provider in the state. So it it has gone both ways. You know, that feels so nostalgic. I know, (laughs) right? I mean, I remember when, you know, one of the first times around with Mississippi, and one of the things the court said was, it is an undue burden to leave people who need abortion care in a state with one clinic. And we seem so far away from that right now. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about where is the moral... Floor? Do we even have a common, you know, compassion 
spot anymore that also, mm-hmm. it just feels like it's gone. I will share with you all in your audience something that I've been thinking a great deal about. And that is, although most Americans believe that people should be able to make decisions they need to make about their bodies, there is a large population of people in this country who are okay with bands. And so that is what we have to reckon with as a movement. How do we talk to people who actually think that bands are okay? Like philosophically, they're like, people should be able to get an abortion when they need it, but they're not connecting the dots about what bands mean uh, Uh for people's access. (laughs) And so the moral ground around this is has always been But we've always counted on people at least understanding that, you know, people should be able to make decisions about their bodies. But what we're seeing now that's playing out with Rogan is the complexity of those, that philosophical idea. And I think, you know, we talked about this on the podcast a lot in the fact that when we hear the right wing shift, because they've seen Americans hate these bands, right? They're like, this is terrible. So then we hear these compromises and they call them compromises and they call them um, consensus. A 12-week ban is fine or, you know, and we often like to say like, no ban is fine because no country that decides they have a law or a rule or a line that government intervention is okay in your bodily autonomy. To me, I think we need to really talk to the public about the fact that all of that is extreme. Yes. And what I learned in the last couple of years that blew my mind, because I'm an OBGYN, I'm a complex family planning trained person. And I did not know that the trimester system was a legal construct and not a medical construct. We've essentially, when Roe v. Wade decision was handed down in 1973, the Supreme Court created the trimester system so that they could balance the state's interest in perinatal life um, of a pregnant person against their ability to obtain an abortion. And the medical system co-opted that. And for decades afterwards, we're teaching this like this is medical science. There is no science to this. We've like kind of built on this kind of padding, right, to, to this decision to make it make sense, you know, from a scientific standpoint, like But, you know, at its core, it was not a scientific or medical construct. And once you know that, like every person who I say this to, they're mind blown, just like I was. Once you realize that, then you really have to start to understand that what matters here is should a birth happen. And when we're looking at things from that standpoint, it starts to be clear that people should be able to make the decisions based on their bodies, their lives, consultation with the healthcare professionals that they choose, because the trimester system is not based in science. I think I really love that you brought that up because I also recently found that out and I was my mind was blown because I was like, okay, so Roe existed in this country for 50 years and I don't know at what point people stopped recognizing that that was a legal construct and not a medical construct. Cause my whole life, which is just under 50 years, it has been. And I just <laughs> assumed that that was so. And it also makes me afraid, especially as laws are being enacted now, what people will have forgotten, you know, in 20 years, in 30 years, depending on how our laws changed. You talk about how the term pro-choice is not now and has never been enough. And I think, again, everyone in this conversation has known that. Can you explain this in like, common sense terms for people who maybe have not thought about that because 
even on our social medias, we get pushback when we say we're pro-abortion. And it's like, what do people need to know about why the phrase pro-choice doesn't work? So I will share with you what I have learned over time. And what I have learned over time is that people who push back and say no one is pro-abortion, I'm pro-choice. Those are actually the people who fall into a couple of categories. One category is social acceptance. They're not comfortable because the narrative hasn't been created to make them feel comfortable in saying that they're pro-abortion. There are so many people who are pro-choice that can't say the word abortion. So some of it is social acceptance. But there is the other group of these people are people who are actually okay with choice with limits. And so those are the pro-choice people who definitely want that 10-year-old to get an abortion, definitely want that rape victim to get an abortion, definitely want that person with that lethal fetal abnormality to get an abortion, definitely want that person who will die if their pregnancy continues to get an abortion. But otherwise, these people who have been going on about their lives becoming unintentionally pregnant because they enjoy sex and they want to have an abortion, those people might have a problem. There, there might be a problem there. And so that's why I am strongly encouraging people who are actually pro-abortion but scared to say it, to step into that, because I'm pro-abortion, but I'm not going and knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, do you want an abortion today? I am providing a safe space for people to come and receive that care in a way that affirms them as a human being. And so just like you would be pro get that appendectomy before your appendix bursts, then you should be pro-abortion because abortion is healthcare and abortion is essential. I love that. And I think of all the conversations that I have with ladies who look exactly like me, that is what I say. And I often say to them, have you ever unpacked why you say that? Because A, how do you defend abortion? If you, A, can't say it, and B, how do you think it makes me feel as somebody who has had more than one abortion? How do you think that makes me feel? It doesn't make me feel like I want to confide in you. It doesn't make me feel like you're a trusted person. And if you really do believe that abortion access is and should be available to everybody, then you need to name it. And like you said, lean in so that the people who are coming to you and talking to you about abortion will feel safe and comfortable. I was at a conference recently, and I think it was maybe the first time that abortion was addressed in that body of people um, at that conference. And some really, really spirited discussion ensued uh, much longer than was expected, and they left space for it in in that space. And I, I ended my comments by saying, and we hear this a lot because we say this a lot. We all know and love someone who's had an abortion. And if you don't think you do, then that means you are not a safe person for the people you love to have this conversation with. And I really need you to think about that. I had more of a technical content-based question. While you were writing this book, a lot of things were shifting and moving in the background. So I'm just curious, purely from like an editing perspective, how did your priorities maybe change or not change? while you were writing Undue Burden as major events like the leak, Dobbs happened while you are being a person unto yourself, a physician, a clinic owner, a human being. How how might have those, those book topics changed or, or were further solidified and cemented for you? 
So I started the book concept in February and I kind of had an idea about a title. It wasn't undue burden. And I had an idea of chapters. By the time I had the second meeting about the kind of the concept, I had already made changes. <laughs> I did start writing and we were writing during the leaked draft. And so once the draft leaked, then, you know, we were marking places where we had written things um, about being able to go back as things were like happening in real time and make some adjustments. And then it became a situation where I needed to write about how I was feeling, what was going on, what I was thinking in the moment. The book was being written kind of loosely based on the chapters that I had created, but it was really me having therapy. <laughs> with myself uh, putting, going through and voicing how it's feeling and what I think people should be doing and, you know, all of these things. And then ultimately, I was actually still writing when abortion was illegal for those couple of weeks in Arizona. So I think I finished right towards the end of September. Then we kind of sat down and was like, okay, these chapters should be consolidated. This is that. And I would say we probably figured out the name somewhere kind of in the middle of writing. And I definitely felt that, you know, undue burden was important as I was like, this is ridiculous. What happened to the Supreme Court? What happened to president? You know, all of these things. Uh, and then I also wanted all the different identities that I hold to be present in the book. So that's how the, the title came about. But yeah, it's a very different book at the end than what the initial concept will set out to be. Dr. Taylor, the thing that I think I'm happiest about you writing this book is because of your identities. You're a Black Christian OBGYN who provides abortions, right? And I want to ask you a two-parter. The first part is when we watch the media and even well-intentioned media, we never hear the stories of providers. We kind of hear the horse race about abortion. We hear about the politics around abortion. A, what do you want people to know about what it means to be an abortion provider and who abortion providers are? And two, who would you like to read this book? Who needs this book the most? I think that the people who need this book the most are the people who need to be affirmed in what they truly believe, but are afraid to outwardly speak. Because in each chapter, I end the chapter with myths and language for people to use to talk about these things. And so it's really is a primer for gathering a little bit more information to understand what the issues really are. And then actually calls to action in ways that you can actually move that needle for yourself to be able to actually be more outspoken and, and use language that you know, people can relate to that resonates with people. You know, what people need to know about abortion providers, honestly, people who provide abortion care are some of the most conscientious, caring, wonderful human beings that exist in the world. Like I'm affirmed by this every day, of course, with as in any profession, you have folks who can be questionable. I have had so many people who have worked and trained with me who say being an, ab an abortion provider makes me a better doctor. And I think that is absolutely true. You learn how to listen to people. You learn how to meet people where they are. You learn how to 
obtain information from people in a way that really helps them make decisions that, are, that, they, that they need to make in their lives, which can be very challenging, not necessarily from a logical standpoint, but there are so many external societal inputs that people are struggling with beyond their own personal needs for their lives and their, and their bodies. And so, you know, being able to navigate that, it, it takes a deep empathy that abortion providers have. Well, it's been so great talking to you. And I am so thrilled every time we talk to somebody who finds their way to abortion provision because of their faith, not in spite of their faith. And I think that you embody that. And we need more people like you just out there in the world. Just I, I just want you to put you on a platform so that people, so we can say to people, this is what a real Christian looks like right here. This person is living the values of Christianity in a way that is profound and amazing. So thank you for the book, Dr. Taylor. Thank you for everything that you do and for practicing in a place where it's hard right now and for sharing your story. Thank you guys for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you all. You can buy Undo Burden in the link in our show notes and Dr. Taylor will send you a signed copy. All right. Are you ready to be tested by me, Liz? I mean, I'm always ready to be tested by you. It sounds like it's COVID, but I feel good. Yeah, nope, nope, not this week. But we are going to the party game that is faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo. That's right, guys. It's six degrees of abortion. And this is when I take a story from the news and Liz has six chances to link it to abortion. So let's see if I can stump her this week. You ready? I am. So I was delighted to hear, just because I love everyone finding their truth and getting their way out of a closet, that Wayne Brady has come out as pansexual publicly to his family, his loved ones, and us, the public. He is dope and incredible. And I would like you to spend six chances to link Wayne Brady to abortion. Oh my God, Moji, this is the easiest one you've ever given me. This is as, damn it. This is almost <laughs> as easy as can you link Liz Winstead to abortion? So Wayne Brady is part of the Whose Line Is It Anyway family and one of the strongest advocate of abortion and abortion access front and this podcast who has been a guest on this podcast, is his partner in all things improv, Mr. Greg Proops. Mm -hmm. So Wayne Brady to Greg Proops, Greg Proops directly to abortion and abortion access front. Greg has been out on the road with abortion access front. He's featured us on this podcast. He's been on our podcast and he is the one of the most amazing humans I know. Agreed. 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 And that was ridiculously easy. I need to work harder. You do a little bit harder. <laughs> Even I was like, Wayne Brady, really? Okay. <laughs> Greg Brady would have been harder. Tom Brady would have been impossible. Tom Brady would have been <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> but I think you did good and I'm proud of you. Also, I just love Wayne Brady. He's a little bit of a national treasure and I love to talk about him. He's a very, yeah, he's very sweet and super he's funny. great. Yeah. Before we get on to our most fantastic third guest. This is the time we like to take to thank those who make the Feminist Buzzkills podcast possible and tell you a little bit about the fake sponsor who is responsible for this week's episode. Moji? Are you a conservative white guy furious at the woke media and your own family for embracing Barbie? Are you being treated like a genital-free plastic cuck in your own dream house? Then Bindal is just for you. 
The Ben doll is modeled after reigning champion of masculinity, Ben Shapiro. Ben dolls are life-sized at 12 inches, have real genitals, and like his counterpart, Ken, the Ben doll also has no ability to pleasure a woman. Take your Ben doll to the March for Life or to CPAC or wrap his tiny fingers around a transvaginal probe at Ben's dream fake clinic. Order now and we'll throw in the Bindal's best buddy, Matt Walsh, for free. You'll love styling his beard and spending hours of fun with the two of them blocking the entrances of children's hospitals to protect kids from accessing trans care. Bindal's, you never wonder who drives the pink Corvette in this family. Baby Hitler accessory not included. How can they not include the baby Hitler accessory? It's such his trademark. Yeah, it's welded to his hip. Oh, it's so cheap of them to just not allow that. Just add it. You should just throw it in. He always throws it in. A hundred percent. That is a, one of your shittier dolls, but I do believe it'll fly off the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll make a billion dollars. Maybe. It could be, it could be, but you know, maybe our next guest would like a Ben doll. Maybe we'll surprise her with it. And maybe the Ben doll could be part of the heaven and hell series that they do. Um, Are you ready for our next guest? So excited. Awesome. She's a TikTok superstar whose heaven and hell series is a big reason. A lot of us here at Feminist Buzzkills wake up every day. Her hot girl summer activism tour is about to kick off. And we're so excited she could take some time to hang with us before she hits the road. Please welcome comedian and actor Stanzi Potenza. Stancy, hi. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Stancy. Thank you for having me. Hello. All right. So we're just going to jump in since you're here on our little abortion podcast. Liz and I, we both know why we're in these streets proudly being pro-abortion. We're super happy to have our abortions. But we've also experienced the disgusting, crazy lies that they serve you at fake clinics. That's a lot of our origin story. Do you have a particular experience that led you to being a pro-abortion witch? Or is that just something you came to because you're a cool person? (laughs) Just growing up in the bog with all the other fellow witches surrounding me. (laughs) But I I did grow up, um, you know, I have uh, have, uh, three sisters and I was raised by um, like a single mom. So it was like just a you know, female dominated household. And I think it, I don't remember a time where um, I was like, you know what, like I, I'm making a stance right now. I am pro-choice. I think it just kind of happened very naturally the way that I was raised, raised in a definitely like very uh kind of liberal household. Um, our parents were very honest with us about their feelings about things and let us kind of decide on our own, like what kind of lives we wanted to lead. Um, wasn't raised in a religious household at all. Um, they told us about God and what God was and that they weren't followers, but we had the right to choose whatever we wanted. And I think that the freedom of choice was something that was like ingrained in us at a very young age. And I think it just was very natural that that was the path that would uh, come naturally to all of us. I mean, it's funny because I was brought up super Catholic and then I just rebelled against it. And I was like, fuck it, like I'm fire. And in your comedy and when you talk about religion, I would have assumed that you came from some shitbag oppressive situation because of the way you are volleying with all the characters that you do and you didn't. So did you grow up in Boston or did you just live a good part of your time in Boston? Uh, I grew up uh, right outside of Boston um, and my family, my extended family, my parents were raised like Irish Catholic. My extended family is uh, is Catholic. Um, a lot of them are religious. And I think that 
growing up without it, you're still subjected to a lot of that growing up, you know, like kids asking you like, why you don't have a communion? You're not, you're not getting confirmed all this. You, you are treated a little bit like an outsider when you don't conform to that. And so I think that made me even more like radicalized a little bit because I didn't have to go through, I say this a lot when I talk to other people, like friends of mine who have religious trauma, like I didn't have to go through this disillusionment, like a lot of them had to. So I was just very aware of how religion was like affecting people in a bad way. I think that when people use it as like a way to like heal themselves, like I I don't judge people for that, but I, I've seen it cause so much harm throughout my life that I became much more radicalized and, and wanted to speak out against it. And I think a lot of people do think that I come from a religious background because of that, but it was like, no, I fully had the choice of what I wanted to believe in um, from like very young age, as soon as the concept of God was brought up to me. But just being aware of it and being aware of how people were treated badly because of it made me be like, oh, this makes me so angry. Well, the nuances and the hilarity, I think I just love so much. Like talk about how you just dive deep and how it formed, like, because you cover the gamut and you don't call yourself an activist, which I find hilarious because you do it better than like most. An <laughs> you, do, well, you, just, you just also do it better than most. And our goal here always is to like use humor to expose truth to power. And when did you figure out you were funny? Like as a kid, when you're like, oh, I can be funny and change people's minds and shit. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was always kind of like a comedic type. You know, I was always trying to make people laugh. Um, and then I started getting involved in theater at a really young age. I was doing shows and stuff and I was making people laugh on stage and that was really important to me. But when I got to college and I was like majoring in theater arts, um, I took a playwriting class that I think really like adjusted my mindset a little bit of, of like how funny I could be because there's a difference between going on stage and performing and people laughing at um, your choices as an actor because those aren't your words. So writing a short play that was well received by uh, my teachers and my classmates made me go, oh, I'm I'm also funny with my own words. I can write characters and, and people will find that funny. So that was uh, 2018 is when I graduated. So obviously I had like a year of doing whatever before the pandemic really hit. Um, and I had started doing the online stuff a little bit prior to that. But once the pandemic hit, I just went full blown focusing on videos and stuff and just taking everything that I had learned from theater arts and 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 writing plays and short stories and just putting that into like short form content that could be, you know, showed online. And it was probably the 2020 election that really like got my account super fired up because I mean, aside from the atrocities that follow elections and how horrific and stressful it is, it's just a gold mine for content because of all the bullshit that's happening. So, I mean, I was on fire. That's when my Heaven and Hell series came to be. I had a lot of other random series that came to be. And, you know, I think that my content is like salad, just drenched, drenched in like dressing. Like you have the they have the salad part, the, the part that's like good for you. And that's like the activist part of it. But then it's like drenched in comedy. So like 
the Caesar dressing is the comedy that you're just like, yeah, this is definitely healthy for me, but it's mostly cream, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy, croutons. Yeah, I know. I just like the shit about it is what's delicious. This is going to be so great for my body. Yeah. <laughs> Accidentally learning. Yeah. So in a way, you know, it's like at the end of the day, this is, it's about my comedy and pushing myself forward and my own sort of selfish desires for wanting to like make it big. But at the same time, I do really like that I can integrate my own social and political views in there. And I do get comments every now and then of people being like, I think this actually changed my mind about something. And that is, that's great. If I can adjust someone's thoughts about a certain subject that I'm passionate about, then I've succeeded. I truly love that. You are a TikToker that, you know, TikTok does never like shows you the same people again. And you are definitely <laughs> one of the creators I like go hunting for sometimes. Like what Stan's even doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you talk about everything and you're so good at it. Where do you get the most blowback? Like you talked about people who are like, oh my God, you changed my mind. But where are people just like, you're the worst? Um, it's probably something either to do with abortion or, or men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, if I, if I make a video about men, they are there in the comments and they are not happy about whatever it is that I have to say. They're so loud sometimes. And wrong. It's like loud and wrong. And just also just laying in wait, you know, they're just waiting to be aggrieved. Every time I'm just like the aggrievement culture of just like subpar men, it's just unbelievable. You know, there's books and showers and there's things <laughs> for you. They're not interested. They're they're not interested. I, I, I'll post like a lot of my comedy is like satirical and sarcastic and because they don't view women as people capable of like depth and comedy like they they take it at face value and that's one of I think the most annoying things about that whole experience because it's like they didn't get the memo they're not on the same page um so then they just make themselves look like idiots in the comment section but I would actually say that my views on abortion have probably got me like the most actual harassment I actually got doxxed uh over the summer which was oh my gosh uh, Oh, yeah, it was a really fun, enjoyable time in my life where my information was just like plastered out there. I went on Twitter and I had people sending me not photos of my home, but photos of my mom's home threatening to uh, to swat the house. So I had to call the like the local police in in my uh, my hometown and, and had to have her go there. And I had to call the NYPD because I lived in. Uh, New York at the time. And I was like, hey, like, it's it's not fun explaining to cops that have no idea how like the internet, how the works. internet works. Like, yeah. You're like, I'm like, I, I felt I felt like I was in some sort of like born identity movie. I'm like, here's what's going I'm a content creator. And like, here's what <laughs> and I'm being www dot. <laughs> yeah. They're like, what? And I'm like, Ugh. so like, that's annoying. And, and you know, having people show up at my mom's house and try to send things to the house and having, you know, the FBI call me and all this nonsense because the pro-life people wanted to just act on behalf of their Lord and Savior, which is really silly um, to be doling out punishment on behalf. That's like if I worked for a large corporation was like I told the CEO to take a back seat while I handled it. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> 
I'm like, oh, the, the audacity of it all. Um, so they got a fun little email from uh, the FBI basically saying that their Twitter records were going to be subpoenaed. And then I didn't hear from them again. But yeah, it's uh, not fun. And it's that whole experience was very like hypocritical. You know, they don't care about life. And, and that's they make it so obvious. And yet... And yet, and yet, they will <laughs> I have been in the, the Joe Rogan crosshairs, which has not been fun at all. Yeah, and then foolishly went on Adam Carolla's podcast to tell him that he was a piece of shit. <laughs> and I did tell him. I literally went on to say, "You are a piece of shit." When he said, "Women <laughs> yeah. comedy writers are only there because they have to fill a quota." And I was like, um, I'm sorry, you are a piece of shit. And that, and that went over well with his fans. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, it's just like the, gar- the garbage train can really take a toll. They, they come out for you bad. Who are your favorite characters? Because you do so many. If somebody would say, okay, look, Stanzi, we're going to make a sitcom out of one of your characters. Is there one that you could be like, yes, this is my Netflix series? Um, I would I would have to say it's probably my uh, my heaven and hell characters. That series has been my most popular. It actually was like I started doing that series after I had like a another really popular series that I wanted to every time I feel like I'm getting pigeonholed in a certain series that I start doing, I, I pivot and I start doing something else because I don't want to get stuck in one thing and be known for one thing. So I had this other series called Civil War Love Saga, and it was about two women, you know, trying to see each other during the Civil War times, like behind mm-hmm. their husband's backs. And and people loved that because I'd, you know, kill off one husband by getting kicked by a horse and the other one dies of <laughs> dysentery. And you're they're like, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I started the uh, Heaven and Hill series because I had some really bad assistants. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't hit the uh, assistant part of my career yet. So but we'll see. But uh, yeah, I started the, the Heaven and Hell series was actually like started because of the the election. It became a way for me to talk about the political stuff in like a fun way where we we turn heaven and hell into, you know, a very like business corporate sort of situation where where God kind of is very laid back and and just kind of wants to party and not really deal with anything and then Satan and his assistant Joanne <laughs> um, are kind of dealing with all of like the bullshit. Obviously, like right now, every, every time something, you know, any crazy political stories come out, I'm like, oh, how can I uh, how can I work this into uh, a heaven and hell sketch? But anytime someone terrible dies, I get flooded with messages being like, do Please. some do a video <laughs> about this person. Like I had to do a like a like two pre McConnell death videos just because people <laughs> wanted to see him in hell so bad. You're like the New York Times a bit page. We yeah. gotta get this stuff planned in advance. Gotta get it out there. Yeah, yeah. So I had to do like two videos for that. When Rush Limbaugh died, everyone was like, Are you gonna are you gonna do a video about him being tortured? I'm like, Yeah, don't worry, you guys, you're gonna get your video. But that would be uh that would be a series that I would wanna get into like a like a Netflix series, like something bigger. So good. We're going to link to all that. If you haven't watched those videos, they're so funny. Thank you. (laughs) We love your TikToks, obviously, as we've said, but you are on tour. Can you tell us what fans should expect to see on your work in progress tour? Yeah. So um, it's it's sort of weird. I kind of skipped all of the weird stand up like stuff. I like I didn't have have a progressive sort of like doing open mic nights and then doing a tight five somewhere. I went from being online and then now I am going on tour, which is going to be a new 
uh, new thing for people, but I have a, it's a stand-up tour. It's going to be like a fully traditional stand-up tour. Um, I'm going to be talking about some of the stuff that uh, I talked about on here. Um, so like I have a whole thing on my doxing situation. I, there's a spicy little Dr. Phil story on there because Ooh. another, another man who took something that I said that was a satire on the internet and then presented it to his audience as a, a real yes. thing as a doctor yes, presenting yes. a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So without, um, without like, you know, going into the whole story, um, this is going to be a fun thing to say without any context, but you know, a small demographic of the U S thinks that I, you know, piss myself while watching true crime. Oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. That is, that's a good teaser for the, for the yeah. tour. For the Why tour. Do are you doing theaters? That? Are you doing clubs? Like what kind of places are you playing? Uh, yeah, caught it. Oh, yeah. Oh, eventually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be doing uh, the Super Bowl halftime show. One, one of That's amazing. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you yeah. Fuck Rihanna. Who needs yeah, that? You wanted Rihanna. How about someone's just like, you know, like 20 minute comedy set? <laughs> maybe just you peeing while you're watching true crime. While watching true crime. Yeah. I'm going to be watching the maybe an 80s and... medley of like early hip hop. There are going to be some sickos in the audience that are going to get a lot out of that. <laughs> but seriously, where, what kind of venues are you going to be at? Comedy venues. Um, yeah. Comedy clubs, I think mostly. Um, yeah. It's going to be really great. Um, we've had three shows leading up to this uh, back in New York in, in January and February. And uh, we added a third show because the first two sold out and uh, we had a great time. So amazing. Definitely come if you want, if you want some laughs and some kind of weird stories, <laughs> we will definitely put all of that in the tour dates. And we're so psyched to have you on and just talk to you and people can see your hilarity, but I just, I always love talking to people about the process of how they got there and such good work. Thank you for like making us laugh in this miserable fucking hellscape that we are in. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be a guest on this. You you guys are doing amazing work. Just an honor to be here. Well, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you. You can find Hot Girl Activism tour dates in our show notes, and you can visit Stanzi Potenza's website at stanzipotenza.com. Also, her socials are at Stanzi Potenza. That's our show. Thanks again to Dr. Deshaun Taylor and Tara Mertz for joining us. You can find about all the stuff they're doing, the book, all the work in our show notes. And thank you so much for listening. You can like, subscribe, and show some love with a five-star rating to stay connected with us on social media. Go to Abortion Front. Let's make a difference together and have some fun doing it. Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion, at operationsaveabortion.com. And visit our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. Want to help organize for abortion access in your campus? Check out Advocate for Youth's Building Campus Coalitions for Abortion Access Workshop over Zoom on August 14th. That's at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. You can sign up for the link in our show notes. Next week, we have our third installment from Netroots Nation. We talk with Pamela Merritt, the executive director of Med Students for Choice, about advocating for med students in post-Roe America. Join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy de Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. 
And finally, we leave you with Daily Wire host Michael Knowles, a man showing his whole ass by revealing conservatives' plan for world domination, which requires a lot of lube. There are two ways to beat the left. You can either out-argue them or you can out-breed them. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.